I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Mystery Man. In a place called Champion City, the forces of good and evil. Captain Amazing. What a surprise. Are about to collide. Well, we've always been each other's greatest nemesis. Now, with the city's one true hero missing, Captain Amazing is in danger. Kaboom! Who will step forward? You again, wannabes. To answer the call of justice. Don't mess with the volcano, my man, because I will go Pompeii on your butt. Golly. Waiting for this moment. The city's in peril, Lucille. All of their lives. Butch needs his vest back. Well, it's my vest, too. I bought it for him. But now that their time has come. I'm a superhero, too. What's his power? <laughs> They're going to need all the help they can get. You got to find a lot of superheroes really quickly. State your name and power. PMS Avenger. I only work four days a month. Is there a problem with that? No. No. I am the Waffler. Waffle Man! Too late to try out? Sorry. You're in. Wow, my first mission and we're gonna rescue Captain Amazing. Here we go! Universal Pictures presents... We need to talk about your plans. I'm going to kill you. Right, that's the part that really doesn't work for me. A new league of heroes that step to a different beat. Well, I am a ticking time bomb of fury. I don't find you threatening. At all. <laughs> Do some carnage. We're not your classic heroes. We're the other guys. Mystery men. I'm invisible. Can you see me? Yes. Wow. Maybe you should put some shorts on or something if you want to keep fighting evil today. This is a commissioned episode paid for by Jameis Enright, so you all have him to thank for that. And we brought on for her debut on our show, M from Verbal... Sorry, someone just honked. <laughs> we got some people who don't like it already. And we brought on for her debut on our show, M from the Verbal Diorama podcast, writer for Film Stories magazine and website, Hello M. When you doubt your powers, you give power to your doubts. <laughs> Em's already done a show on Mystery Men, but she absolutely wanted to come back and talk about it again. So, oh, uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, if, if you folks get to the end of this one, you're like, it's not enough. I need more mystery. Then check out Em. At least check out Em's uh, show on Mystery Men. She's done a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And we'll give you a chance to talk about that at the end of the show. But in the meantime, joining us once more, we have one of our very favorite people, Victoria Grieve, whom you folks may have heard recently talking about Shrek, The Princess Bride and Gravity Falls. Hello there, Victoria. Aren't these things a little formulaic? I mean... <laughs> the Thanks gym. for having me back, as always. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. Now, this episode is going to be a strange juggling act because I feel like we all like Mystery Men and we can also all see that it's kind of a, a, a mess, maybe even kind of a failure on many levels. And that may also be one of the reasons why we like it. It's an underdog. Uh, for context, I'm going to give you all the skinny on this now. 
It was a 1999 movie which parodied the comic book movies released up until that point. So that would have been Superman in 1978 and its three progressively worse sequels. Batman in 1989 and its three progressively worse sequels. It's notable that both series started serious and grew farcical, running the two titans of DC Comics into the ground. Those were the big releases prior to Mystery Men, and those would appear to be its main targets for poking fun at. But there was more. Supergirl in 1984, a kooky mess of a movie, and like the ones mentioned above, we have covered that on our show. The Dolph Lundgren Punisher in 1989, which was basically a Stallone-style action crime thriller, and notably the makers were afraid for their anti-hero to rock the signature skull on his chest because they were making a movie for grown-ups, and comic books are for kids. Look dryly into the camera. A version of Captain America made in 1990 that everybody has thankfully forgotten. That uh, one had stick-on rubber ears because the suit chafed son of J.D. Matt Salinger's poor head. Then there was Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, deliberately filmed on zero budget and unreleased to retain Marvel their rights. Alec Baldwin's The Shadow in 1994, which was a dumping ground for outdated Fu Manchu references that would make George Lucas blush. There was The Mask in 1994, based on the Dark Horse comic, and itself a dark, as far as the 90s mainstream was dark, parody of both comics and cartoons. There was the Billy Zane in Purple Pantaloons Phantom in 1996. It's notable that this and The Shadow and Dick Tracy were all optioned following Batman because the old-school Hollywood producers, who were 90 years old at the time, believed Batman's popularity was due to the Burton film featuring a star of the golden age of comics and not because he was the goddamn Batman. So they greenlit anything that they remembered based on the funny books that they would read on the doorstep after playing stickball behind Old Man Wiggleby's sweet shop. Only the little baby Jesus knows how and why Howard the Duck got approved. But the 90s was also the landscape of the biggest boom in paper comics that we will probably ever get since the Golden Age. Sparked off by The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, the Chris Claremont X-Men, superstar artists like Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld quitting Marvel to get their own comic label, which brought a bunch of... Sharon was about to say with Blackjack and Hookers, wasn't it? <laughs> to get their own comic label image which brought a bunch of dark, dangerous, super anti-heroes and off-brand X-Men-style teams screaming into existence, covered in claws and liquid metal, knives and stabbing weapons, smothered in belts and pouches, enormous laser guns, cyborg eyes and pinched, ugly faces. Thankfully, the movies that stemmed from that only included the self-serious and shambolic Spawn in 1997, and then there was Blade in 1998, which actually took its world relatively seriously with a slick, confident style and decent action. It then had two sequels, which grew more farcical. Don't <laughs> <laughs> just sing a pattern here. And we've covered them too. At the end of the 90s, when Mystery Men launched, ready to make fun of all that... The X-Men will be out in 11 months' time, Spider-Man in three years, Hulk and Daredevil and the Fantastic Four and Ghost Rider to follow. The prototypes and one-off mistakes gave way to a kind of a practice era when things got like bigger and more serious, when superheroes were able to do what they did on the comic page thanks to advances in digital tech. And a few of those films were genuinely good. I think people just all, all tend to agree that the first two Spider-Man films are straight-up classics. The third stage began with Batman Begins in 2005 and gave way to Marvel stepping up to doing things right without any embarrassment with 2008's Iron Man. And at that point, superhero movies became what they always needed to be. But 
Rewind, nine years to the end of the millennium with Mystery Men. And what follows is going to be harsh, but we can claw our way back after my intro with post-panning personal positivity. Universal Studios threw a comparatively enormous budget at this thing with $68 million. They also did what was popular at the time, and rather than bringing in an established director of movies, they brought in the director of commercials. If you remember McGee, the director of music videos, including uh, the Smash Mouth song for this particular movie, mm. he got into movies around about this same time. Um, Kinka Usher was not known before this film, and he was not known after this, his single cinematic piece, either. Accordingly, he shot his movie with the sensibilities of a Taco Bell commercial. With his trusty fisheye lens, he curled himself into awkward, obtuse angles, filming practically inside the noses of his subjects, shooting from the ground at enormous clunky platform shoe level, or pointing up at the unflatteringly photographed buttocks of his victim actors, all of whom in interview seem a little bit flummoxed as to how this thing was going to turn out. Like They're like, oh, it's, it's, it's kind of like a so it's an underdog story, and it's about, like, the losers, the other guys. And what a cast, by the way. Ben Stiller, Jeffrey Rush, William H. Macy, Hank Azaria, Gene Garofalo, Greg Kinnear, Wes Studi, Paul Rubens, Kel Mitchell, Claire Forlani, Eddie Izzard, Praz Michael, Tom Waits, and Lena Olin. All of them had hit something of a peak in the 90s. Several would go on to even more success, and most of them were gifted comedians. The screenplay was written by Neil Cuthbert, who also wrote Hocus Pocus, alongside Bob Burden, the writer of the original comic that this was based on, Dark Horse's Flaming Carrot. It is notable that the carrot made his first appearance in 1979. Similarly to Howard the Duck and later Deadpool, these comics knew they were comics and they played with that premise in surreal fashion. The Flaming Carrot was a founding member of the Mystery Men in issue 16 of his 1984 series entitled I Cloned Hitler's Feet, and 15 years later he did not appear in the movie. It's hard to see exactly what Universal were hoping for with this. The budget that I said before, $68 million, was $5 million more than The Matrix. Whew. And it made back barely half of that. In Mark Kermode's book, The Good, The Bad, and The Multiplex, he spends a whole chapter talking about massive dual box office and critical failures. And one of the most significant recurring types is the very expensive comedy. Elaine May's Ishtar cost $51 million and made $14 million back. Peter Chelsom's Town & Country cost $90 million and made $10 million back. When you spend all that money on a blockbuster, the story often becomes how much was spent and people show up to see the spectacle. So if it's like a big effects blockbuster, people want to see that money on screen. With an unfunny comedy, there isn't much to see aside from overpaid comedians. With a horribly made thriller, you can sometimes mine a lot of unintentional laughs. Nobody was ever unintentionally thrilled by a bad comedy. It doesn't even have to be that bad. It can be funny, but only to select people. And yet Mystery Men is funny to a select crowd. And it does have the attempt at spectacle in there. They really did sort of try to make a big multicultural metropolis with Champion City and the camp and crazy colourful costumes. There is plenty to see here. It seems like this was regarded in general by the general public as 
a comedy, whilst also attempting to carve the same niche of production design as the superhero movies that it was attempting to parody, many of which were a lot cheaper than it. So in the end, it didn't hit home with the general audiences it was aiming for, and it garnered 61% freshness with critics in an era before we could look at the Tomatometer. And while no Michael Bay movie ever had reviews terrible enough to ensure that it wasn't a success, the lukewarm levels of praise could not have helped Mystery Man. But fans find it strangely appealing and rewatchable and endlessly quotable, including me, who was there to see it opening week. I was really excited about it, I think, because uh, I really enjoyed something about Mary. So I was like, this is Ben Stiller. He's a card. And um, Janine Garofalo, I had kind of fallen a little bit in love with, thanks to uh, Truth About Cats and Dogs. Yeah. Uh, so just seeing all the stills in Empire Magazine, I was like, I've got to see that when it comes out. And in fact, I took time out of a holiday in Miami, like one of the last times I ever got to go on holiday, to go spend two hours in a darkened room watching this. And somehow I didn't live to regret that fact. This feels like an oddball cult indie comedy made on a shoestring budget, even though it's clearly absolutely not that thing. It stands to reason that this same 1990s Universal saw Clerks in 1994, paid for with Kevin Smith's credit cards and raking in $3 million, and they commissioned him to make Mall Rats for them in 1995, a frat comedy with Stan Lee in it that cost $6.1 million and made $2.1 million. Mystery Men feels like that kind of low-key mistake, not the financial catastrophe it kind of actually ended up entailing. The, I mean, relative to, say, town and country, it's kind of a tight... It at least only lost half of its budget, mm. but... So here and now, we are going to talk about what the experience of watching it two decades later is like, what themes they actually managed to thread through this thing, intentionally or not, and the many aimless, colourful characters littering its funhouse sets. Okay, first one, because it's the first thing we see. Champion City. I would argue it's a character, just as muddled as the rest of them. What details did you catch over the years, and what is the overall impression of this place? One thing that really smacked me in the face this time, which I had never caught on any any previous watchings of it, um, is the, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, Russian? On all of the street signs and oh, yeah? shop um, frontings. Kinka Usher very specifically said he wanted to make it very multicultural, kind of like a mishmash of, of everything all yeah. at once. I mean, there's not a great deal else that feels Russian or, or even sort of Eastern European about the, the city. Mm. Um, I suppose it just sort of underpins that huge gap between, say, the Shoveler's neighbourhood, mm -hmm. where the houses are all kind of pastel coloured and all look very similar and all look fairly ramshackle and broken down, and the ridiculous opulence of Casanova Frankenstein's mansion. Yeah, his Spanish mansion. I always kind of noticed that, because uh, one of the things about Captain Amazing specifically, apart from the fact that we, we're still not sure whether he is or is not Lance Hunt, by the way. I, I don't think the movie is <laughs> never fully <inclusive>. clear <laughs> on, on whether Lance Hunt and Captain Amazing are different people. Uh, I'm, I'm still not 100%. But one of the things about Captain Amazing is obviously he's very into his corporate sponsors. And, and I always find that quite fascinating. Um, and that's something that 
most recently, The Boys, uh, the TV show The Boys, has kind of touched on the the logos that he's got all over his uh, his outfit. Um, they they are the logos. It's the Pepsi logo, but it's not Pepsi. Mm, it's Japanese and, Pepsi or something. Yeah, the English version of the Pepsi logo is actually on his back in the middle of his shoulder blades, oh, and right. the one on his shoulder is the one that's in Japanese. Oh, so that's the one I noticed. That. Yeah, there's 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 a whole bunch of different logos, and some of them are duplicated in different languages, which. I guess sort of helps that multicultural mm. perspective that you were talking about. The thing for me is the opening shot of this looks like it could have been taken straight out of Blade Runner. I was and... just about to say the Asian and American influence is, is kind of crammed together. It's like they, they, they went with that duality and then added a load of extra ones on top of that. It, it's like if Joel Schumacher shot Blade Runner because it's got like the archaic technology, the blimps, the very like swooping, very mm. Batman-y Schumacher shots, but it looks very Blade Runner-y. It was like literally the first notes I wrote down. Yeah, same here, rainwashed neon. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, very dirty. It feels like, like you say, the city feels dirty and grimy, and but it's, it's also got that neon and, and that kind of uh, contrast between the two I, I think is quite interesting because um i mean a lot of my notes i'm going from when i did the episode kind of back in november but i hmm. mentioned specifically the schumacher batman mm. uh because it does feel very it does feel very schumacher you know with with his batman movies that he intentionally kind of made they were purposefully a lot more bright and colorful and mm. a bit more kitsch and yeah i suppose neon is is kind of the best way to describe them as well but mm. um but yeah that that's one thing that always kind of struck me about champion city and and also the fact that watching it today watching you know the camera kind of swoops down through this very fake looking <laughs> champion city um it doesn't the, the the effects of of that kind of camera soup swooping down into city they don't hold up incredibly well nowadays i don't think uh, for me, personally. 90s CGI. I mean, none well, of the exactly. CGI in this movie holds up that well. Uh, another big kind of touchstone for the Schumacher Batman films and, like, that style that was being parodied was this combination of, like, super advanced technology but also archaic tech. Like how in – there are blimps everywhere. In the asylum, there's, like, a, a megaphone, like a very old-school gramophone-style megaphone that the, the intercom system is working out from. But then you have, like, atomizers and – like weird super tech that's just techno babble and nonsense. Psychofraculators. Mm, the psychofraculator, yeah. yeah. The, the fact that the the leading aesthetic with making anything technological as well is that you make it big and you stick as many bits on it as you possibly mm. can, which is um, in I suppose in in ethos is a little bit steampunk, but I, it doesn't have that sort of um, that leather-worn thing that steampunk tends to have. Yeah. yeah, but it's like, like you say, it's it seems kind of a sidestep from the reality because, generally speaking, the way technology goes is when it starts to get better, you make it smaller and you take bits off it and you make it look more sleek and more streamlined and they've completely gone the other way. It's almost like if you took the technology level of, like, a Shelley's Frankenstein and then punked it mm. to make, you know, like a... Something like that, because even the the fraculator has big toggle switches like, <laughs> you know, you're throwing the switches to call down or to catch the lightning or whatever. Mm. Mm. And honestly, I, I feel like if the Schumacher Batman films had not existed, 
and it had been a few years. Well, and, and and Mystery Men came out in 1995 and was directly taking the Mickey out of the Burton Batman films, mm. which were kind of twisted and funny, but also self serious to a degree, uh, because Burton and humor don't like Burton doesn't have the same sense of humor that the average person does. It feels like if they'd been doing that then, this might have worked better with general audiences. Where they shoot themselves in the foot is seeming to parody a camp farce, which itself is it's parody. parody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's uh, effectively the, the, the studios after the disgusting perverts in uh, Batman Returns, uh, you know, like uh, Michelle Pfeiffer <laughs> licking herself and everything else that came into contact with her, and um, Danny DeVito basically oh, wanting God. to molest everything with his flippers. Uh, the studio went, okay, we need to get to somewhere family-oriented with this thing. So thanks, Tim. Do you want to stay on as exec producer? And so they deliberately went for something closer to the Adam West Batman. And the Adam West Batman was itself kind of uh, a parody of more serious 1940s serials mm. where they, uh, you know, it was like, we've got to do this, otherwise this person dies. And, you know, the, the, say the Fleischer Superman, where they were basically playing it straight. Um, so... It, like, and that, that one had, like, forever had been very, very popular. And then a few years went by and everybody rejected and Robin, even though it was actually very similar aesthetically, because a lot of people had grown up over just those couple of years and people suddenly became tired and also kind of everyone seemed to want to grow up too much. So every, it seemed like Batman and Robin was just done and that, that Batman kind of petered out at that point. And then two years go by, and Mystery Men comes out with an aesthetic very, very similar. Which I think just may have led the average audience member to question, what exactly am I looking at, and what are you making fun of? Because at the baseline of this movie, it's looking at comic books and looking at adaptations of comic books and going, well, that's silly. And and kind of like taking your vigilantes and going, right, imagine if their powers were a bit crap. And like so, you got the the master of silverware who uh, you know throws forks, and uh, you got the shoveler who's uh, very good with uh, garden implements, and um, uh, and Mr. <laughs> Furious is a I think Mr. Furious is probably the most on point in terms of gags because he's a walking Wolverine parody. Like he's the gu- the guy in the group who will not get on with Cyclops, and you know always goes his own way. And specifically Wolverine's berserker rage, which when he started getting angry, he started giving into the beast inside. And it feels like Mr. Furious Roy has read these comics and gone, you know, I kind of feel something like that too. (laughs) But his berserker rage manifests itself as, in the words of Lyra, a little boy's tantrum. And uh, and so like he he's probably the best example of like sort of like lampooning nineties tropes, just in terms of what we th- what was trying to be very cool. That actually, if you you could you could suck all the cool out of that, it would be very funny. I wonder if these if this movie would look the same without Batman's three and four though. Mm. Like, I I feel like they it has to have. Like it, it has to be a reference 
to that. It's so oh, yeah. similar. It's it's very direct. Like if you look at the red eyes at the beginning when they're uh, they're robbing oh. a nursing home, they could literally be out of they they could be lackeys of of the Riddler or mm. something. Yeah, they, like even the guy with the one little ripped cream, Mister Cherry Top, with the orange hair, looks like he's fighting Jim Carrey. And the, the crashing the party element of it that. Seems yeah. to me to be a direct reference to uh, Two Face and the Your Riddler. entrance was good. His was better. Precisely. Yeah. 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 Well, and also the in Batman and Robin when Poison Ivy crashes the big party yeah. right after the or right before the stupid Batman credit card scene, which gives it almost a feel of Hey guys, can we play too? And at the same time, make fun of you. So already it's off on the kind of the wrong foot. But I think that ties in really strongly with one of the key themes of this, though, which is it's that kind of... If you could break a superhero story down into jocks versus nerds, mm. that's what this is. <laughs> Dude, these can are, we uh, bring the brewskis? These are the nerds who are scornful of the jocks, but also desperately want to play. <laughs> Very true. Uh, Lyra mentioned that um, Captain Amazing looks like a NASCAR car, as in he's absolutely slathered in stickers and endorsements. I've got Formula One drivers, and that's sort of um, the... What you do is exciting and engaging in and of itself, but you still have to justify your existence in this sort of capitalist setup by selling yourself as a canvas to people. Mm. Here it is definitely worth pointing out something I didn't discover until I started doing the edit of the episode. The main theme was by Mark Mothersbaugh, who has done a lot of work for Wes Anderson, did the Lego movie, Thor Ragnarok. But the actual score, the day-to-day stuff that happens in the movie, is Shirley Walker. And she is responsible for the Batman the Animated Series soundtrack, in collaboration with Stephen Warbeck. This is akin to getting Harry Gregson Williams to do the music for Team America World Police. You want to make it sound authentic as a parody of the thing you're trying to parody, misguidedly or not, you get the composer who does that stuff. Okay, so we can actually go to the characters now. The Shoveler. Uh, and and with each of these characters, let's look at what are their issues, what are their problems, what are they trying to overcome. So let's start with uh, William H Macy's very dignified the, uh, Eddie the Shoveler. The character that I love most is probably the Shoveler, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's because um, ultimately he's just a really good guy. He is uh, he is this kind of kind fatherly voice of reason within the group Mm. um he's kind of the only one who can really communicate with roy but it's it's not proper communication it's it's like teenage boy communication because there's no there's no real you know when when roy eventually comes back to the group there's no talking about oh you know i made a mistake It, it feels very kind of teenage boy like you do you, you want to do you want to hang out and play computer games kind of thing and like yeah, yeah, okay. and that's, do you want to come back in the treehouse yeah and then they're friends again you know um but i think with with eddie specifically um it's kind of his relationship with his wife um mm. that that kind of really is is the linchpin because this is kind of the reality of the situation for for him and and pretty much for everyone because we don't really see anyone else's home life 
we don't see their families we don't see their children or their loved ones we only really see eddies and we know that ultimately he has a wife and he has children heaven knows how he supports his family um if, if it literally he is being a superhero you know practically i think she mentions he's doing it every night mm. um so you assume he has a day job as well so how how the guy sleeps i have no idea <laughs> but he he and she even says you know to him you know you're a good husband and a good father but if you carry on what you're doing i will leave you mm. <laughs> and it, it it he he kind of has this very kind of roots ground level uh issue that no one else kind of has in that yes the the world's at stake and casanova frankenstein is going to destroy everything and but he has a family you know he's a family man mm-hmm. um and i think that the, the the issue that his wife has with his current lifestyle is completely 100 valid because if that was your husband and if he was going out every night to fight crime with a shovel <laughs> You'd probably be just as exasperated as she is. He's <laughs> you know? the one who's... Uh, you, you're absolutely right. He's the one who's the most invested in society in his private life, as in mm-hmm. uh, he's got what would be considered... Uh, if you check out the deleted scenes, he does actually have a job shoveling, and Roy comes he's to a see... Yeah, worker. he's a construction yeah. worker. Roy comes to see him, and they talk about him coming back on the team because he pretty much leaves after that first uh, confrontation with his wife, uh, and Roy gets him back. But uh, yeah, he, he's the guy who's got the house, the wife, the kids. Uh, this is what society points at and goes, do this, get this done right, fall into place. And uh, as far as they're concerned, Eddie's doing it right. And every time he steps out and becomes the shoveler, he's doing it wrong. So this pressure is on him to conform again everybody else is kind of a punk in some way like they they've got a, they're, they're less attached mm. to, to varying degrees the the element of eddie that i think registers strongest with me and he's the he's the best example of my theory about one of the themes of the, the film and mm-hmm. i don't know how intentional this was it seems scattered enough that there is an outside chance this could all just be coincidence and just me reading into it but i i think there is definitely some intentionality to it i'm i'm almost certain there has to be um, and that's the the fact that the, these three central characters are all manifesting versions of of being a superhero and and specifically being a man that they don't seem to gel with particularly well um and it 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 made me think that the the mystery men term could relate to it is a mystery to them how to be men (laughs) because if you look at, at where eddie's real skills lie he talks about the being drawn to be the shoveler because he's good with a shovel. He shovels well. He shovels well. <laughs> Eddie's house is full of gardening references. There are plants everywhere. There are shovels hanging up by the front door. His kid runs around the house with a, a little plastic shovel. He's Samwise Ganji. Exactly. <laughs> that's a that's a nurturing thing. Eddie's skills lie in nurturing. The way he talks to Roy, and you're absolutely right, Em, about it being that kind of uh, extending a, um, 
a hand to a teenage boy who's sort of rejected it and pushed it away and how do you bring them back in with without making them feel like they've lost their dignity that they've you know they're able to save some face that's a skill not everybody can do that mm. and eddie mm. manages to do it and extend a hand and a, a, a a, just a simple line that lets Roy come back in without losing his sense of, of who he is. Um, yeah. And he also kind of repeats it later on with um, the invisible boy when everyone's like, I don't think this is a good idea. You're going to get killed. And Eddie's the one who says, yeah, you can do this. Go on. You got this. Eddie specifically feels like a parody of the boomer married man cliche Mm -hmm. where you're expecting him to be a lot more henpecked or a lot more uh, like exhausted or whatever. But no, he just loves his wife. It's an interracial couple, which in and of itself is somewhat of a subversion of that cliche. And nobody Uh, ever mentions anything about that, which was rare in the 90s. It's incredible. This movie, I, I was I was watching this with my partner yesterday and she had never seen it. So it was fascinating hearing her take on things as we were going through it but for a 90s movie it's weirdly progressive in some ways and really not in others (laughs) uh and specifically sharon i love your the mystery of being men because i literally have notes on all six of the main characters dealing with masculinity to varying degrees (laughs) good Um, it's not just me then that's awesome (laughs) no well i don't i don't know if if it being you and me makes it not also just us, but yeah, that's beside the point. <laughs> Although I guess I didn't write any notes down to this for the Sphinx because he's just too terribly mysterious. But well, terribly mysterious. <laughs> but yeah, Eddie is kind of an interesting one. He's this blue oh, wait, color... wait, wait. interesting. Uh-huh. I know, I know. I'm about to critique. You didn't okay. call him out when she used it earlier. Yeah, I know, but she's brand oh, sorry, new. You know, I didn't. <laughs> I know, I know she's new. I know, I'm the one that gets called out because I've been oh. here long enough. I should M gets to say, hey, it's my first day. Yes, exactly. Okay, okay go, go, elaborate. So, uh... <laughs> oh, now I've been derailed. For folks who are brand new to this show, interesting oh. is a hedge word, so that uh, the, the absolute worst use of it would be, uh, so what did you think of uh, my movie? It was... Yeah, it was interesting. Interesting. Like the pause is what really kills it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, okay, how <laughs> was it interesting? So, I don't know. Okay. If, if it's a pause, it's almost like it's like, oh, they thought it was bad, but they're trying, they're trying to, to be assuage nice, it. But yeah. if you're like, it was interesting. It's just, there's just nothing there. It's just yeah. a blank. But no, blank. you can't say, I find this interesting and here's why. So you were yeah. about to anyway. Which you were going to, Victoria. We, Please continue. Yeah, yeah. No, but we, I feel like it's always important this... to remind people why yeah, <laughs> that interesting. It's, it's okay. We've done this song and dance how many times now? More. Right. So, <laughs> so Eddie, Eddie's almost this parody of this boomer married cliche. He's this working class blue collar guy he doesn't have any kind of special magical powers or anything he's just he just shovels very well and there's so little for me to to like latch onto is the unfortunate part about it especially in that masculinity i i think sharon was really well observed with the the nurturing elements of all of the the shovels and other things around the house. But that scene where he's talking to Roy about his address book, which is what you're referencing later on, is so cringy Mm. to me right now. Uh, It's just like this, oh, this is the, like, incapability of men 
being able of like these stereotypical men being able to exchange actual like information about their emotions and to talk about things uh in any kind of open way and i think the critique that eddie is accepted in that he's almost like the father figure of the whole group even more so than like the sphinx even though he's kind of that's the sphinx is kind of the leader the shoveler eddie is kind of the older one at least in action he's the married man he's the one who is trying to keep them all together and he's might not be any good at communicating how he feels really because even when he's talking to his wife she's the one who's talking to him a lot and he's just saying i know that's fair i love you and not really expressing like his own annoyance at say the barbecue at his house Mm. or uh even in the end whenever she's like i'm not going to be here when you get back and he's like well that's just it's just a risk I'm going to have to take is the longest line he says to his wife, mm. pretty much. Yeah. He's he's just very closed off and very contained. Or you could think he's very efficient with the information that he's giving. Like he's he's very good at speaking to the other characters in a way that helps them connect. But it's not in a way that makes sense for reality. It's almost yeah. uh, reinforcing a stereotype. Mm. Yeah, and he doesn't seem to have a great deal of faith in his own uh, knowledge of things either. The speed with which he defers to other characters who appear to be more sure of themselves know more about something than he does. Um, I think he's the first one to um, say that they need uh, the bowler because she can pronounce Kartra correctly. Kartra. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and he's never he's also one of the characters who never has a crisis of faith about his abilities mm, in the finished yeah. film like it was in that deleted scene but because you know he's not super powered he doesn't have any kind of supernatural thing he's not cursed uh he's just a dude with a shovel and then a smaller shovel mm. that he uses in in times of need but the <laughs> which is one of the funniest moments in the entire movie to me is when he pulls out that little trowel mm. <laughs> but uh he he has like just a very simple it's just like yeah i'm very skilled with this one implement and that's it and he never questions it he never has any doubts into his ability really there's also a dynamic that exists between uh eddie and roy which is a slight it's either a send-up or a kind of a, a weird reversal of the lancer hero dynamic that that turns up in in a lot of um like uh, group stories so usually the hero is someone who is very like he's, he's the one like pulling everybody through so if you take cyclops out of uh, the x-men he's the one who truly believes wholeheartedly in charles xavier's dream uh and he, yeah, he's the one that the Lancer will argue with all the time because the, the Lancer's like, you know, I go where I want to go, bub. I'm the best I am at what I do and what I do ain't pretty. If they didn't want me to scratch, they shouldn't have given me claws. But ultimately, Eddie's the one who's drawing back from the, from the team because he has this, you know, regular life, civilian life that's actually warm and welcoming for him. And also kind of laying quite a lot of ultimatums that is like, you know, you really have to do this now. And put, you know, give your son back his baseball vest. And uh, and, and yet Roy, who has 
nothing much else going on in his life apart from the mystery men is really into the idea of being a superhero like he doesn't really falter until he starts to doubt his own abilities at the end so weirdly he's the lancer trying to do the hero's job while the hero tries to like pull away like the lancer would so it's it's this um uncomfortable inversion which you know it works very well for this particular film because the they do everything wrong. They mess up what the uh, the X-Men do all the time. And curiously, the, the superheroing is treated like it should be considered almost like an addiction. Because like, another part of that cliche is that like the, the boomer henpecked husband is also an alcoholic. But Eddie's not. He mm. has no vices. He, he won't even eat egg salad uh unless he has given up hope like the the fact that him indulging in something is him talking about how like do we have any hope of doing this or should i eat this egg salad sandwich and the superheroing in the conversations with his wife is almost treated as that addiction like you need to stop doing this you need to come back you need to focus on your life and on your kids and on your wife but it's a higher calling to him so it, it can't even even that is a subversion of part of the cliche in such a specific way. Hi, everybody. You know, tooth decay and gingivitis can be a crime. That's why I use Mighty Whitey Toothpaste. Because I want my teeth to look amazing. I'm going to bring this up again. It's 150 bucks a piece. We each chip in. My cousin knows this guy who knows a publicist. What are we going to publicize, Roy? The fact that we get our butts kicked a lot? Well, maybe if you didn't smack me in the face with a shovel every time we went out, All right, you'd have some no, more wins to no. brag about. I'm sorry about that. I just have a tendency to lose my concentration when I've got a salad fork stuck in my rear end. Oh, oh, I get it. So your shovel in his face is my fault. You threw a spoon at the guy, Jeff. Yeah, what was up with that? Frightfully embarrassed about that. I, I thought it was a fork. You're the master of cutlery. You can't throw a knife sometimes. No, I can't. Oh, you, oh, you can't uh, use a rake sometimes? No, I'm the shovel. Well, I'm the blue rajah. I'm not stab man. I'm not knifey boy. I'm the blue rajah. You know, that's another thing. Well, I mean, you could get a little bit of blue in the uniform somewhere. Really? I mean, you, got, you got green. There's like a little flowery thing happening, but there's like everything but. Doesn't make a lot of sense. If we could just step out of our literal minds for just one moment. Hey, ooh, look what I'm doing. Look at that. I'm putting 150 right on the table. Who's in with me, huh? I don't have 150. Now, do I? If I did, I would plunder my mother's silverware. It's a waste of money. You know who doesn't think it's a waste of money? Little Mr. Captain Amazing. Well, Captain, um, if we had a billionaire like Lance Hunt as our benefactor, yeah, we could spend 150. That's because Lance Hunt is Captain Amazing. Oh, don't uh, start that again. Lance Hunt wears glasses. Captain Amazing doesn't wear glasses. He takes them off when he transforms. That doesn't make any sense. He wouldn't be able to see. Okay, so Blue Raja, uh, what's uh, what's his troubles? Uh, where do you start with the blue Raja? Uh... You just have a little bit of blue in your costume. Yeah, remember somewhere. how I said jocks versus nerds? <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that every single time he announces who he is, he has to explain why <laughs> he's called the blue Raja and he has to go into the whole British Raj and that's why he's British, but he doesn't have any blue in his costume and um, he, he is kind of the epitome of a teenage boy. You know, he lives with his mother he doesn't want his mother to know anything about his life. So he's kind of hiding in his room. She even kind of asks him if he's smoking weed because of the 
the, uh, the the smoke that's kind of coming out of his bedroom door. And he is obviously pilfering his mother's silverware. Uh, <laughs> you, you, I, I always kind of question, though, like, how much silverware does she own? Because he flings a lot of forks. <laughs> and, you know, you might have, I don't know, um, maybe 12 forks. In your in your cutlery drawer, <laughs> but where does he get all the rest from? And then she, but I do love at the end that she she gets out the special. Sorry, I'm laughing. She gets out the special tableware that belonged to his great great grandmother, <laughs> and she just gives it to him because she's so proud of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's really nice. I think that's he he was hiding from his mother for so long because he didn't think that she would approve of his life and of his life choices. Um, I mean, whether that's like a metaphor for, you know, maybe um, someone who's gay, for example, Mm. hiding their life from the, their their parent or their loved one um, because they don't believe that that person will approve. Um, And then it comes to the, the end of the movie and she is 100% behind her son. So much so she gives him this good silverware. (laughs) I mean, your great great grandmother's silverware is, is something incredibly special for you to fling at the bums of some bad guys. So <laughs> he is essentially uh, a teenage boy with a lot of questions, I think, about who who he really is. Because mm. you know, there's like these two sides. I think you know, obviously, it is it is a, a superhero tale, and you've always got these, you know, your your uh, superhero alter ego and your your mild mannered human so-called alter ego like you know clark kent and superman and obviously he is so different from the blue raja in real life you know he's a different nationality for a start um you know we don't really know much about him other than he lives with his mother um and she but she even says it's she mentions a little comment uh she says that she gives him the great great grandmother's silverware because she doesn't think that he's going to be getting married anytime soon Mm. it's an interesting way to kind of look at well maybe this is a a metaphor for being gay and his pun game is incredibly strong i think he has the strongest (laughs) pun well you've got hank azaria you make the most of that delivery (laughs) absolutely and and uh, i know the good place uh which is obviously uh finished now but they were obviously quite hot on the forks and the Mm. fork pun but I kind of feel like they got that from the Blue Raja because the Blue Raja <laughs> did the fork fair. pun before it was cool to do the fork pun. Fork yourself. I, yes. <laughs> I definitely don't read the Blue Raja with any kind of like LGBTQ. No? He is like an otaku fanboy living mm-hmm. in his mother's basement and appropriating another culture that he finds fascinating and building his entire personality around it. But instead of appropriating Japanese anime culture, he's appropriating British culture, specifically British culture appropriating Indian culture, mm. kind of. By which, which point he's been racist? through so many filters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm, I'm watching the film and I'm like, like, I'm going to be on a call tomorrow with a bunch of British people and I need to ask them, is this racist? Is this appropriation of a culture? He just really seems to me that kind of obsessive fanboy, breathlessly, uh, like, it, to, to go back to that, that uh, relation to masculinity, it's the idea that you didn't, you were never pressured to make a personality So you have subsumed your personality with fanboyism. And that's really that like otaku mindset that has become quite a stereotype. And even today, like people call it like an arrested development of people 
still living into their 20s and 30s for a variety of economic reasons, really, still living with their parents because they it's just not viable. But, I, I mean, I I think becoming obsessed in, like, a fandom is almost appropriate in the horrors of life these days. But um, it's... Anything for an escape right now. Right. But at the time, in 1999, it was... It wasn't quite as like immediately like, yeah, that's like today I can I can look at somebody like that and be like, yeah, OK, like I'm not going to give you any shit for that because it, the, the world is is what it is. But in the 1990s, like 1999, back when I had my anime phase, uh, just thinking about a lot of the folks that I interacted with on those various circuits where their entire personality was subsumed by uh, this culture, this this fandom, this specific way of relating to the world as a way of filling that void where most people build more of a personality. And the irony is there's another character in the film, Invisible Boy, who seems to be doing that exact same thing with superheroes, but they don't go into it. They don't really go into his, his life and... There's all like there was all kinds of like little bits of characterization they could have attempted in the idea that Champion City appears to be home to a lot of superheroes and vigilantes. And like, you know, when they have the loser tryouts, which will actually um I've got a question that will, I will finish this episode on. But the um like yeah, everyone who wants to be in a cadre uh comes along at once. There's loads of them. And all of them want to be superheroes. It reminds me very much of Watchmen. I don't know whether this was intentional or not. Mm. But the um I mean Alan Moore's take on this is that it would be extraordinarily bad if a Superman existed and it would be terrible uh, to, to watch people um, become vigilantes because they were starry-eyed at the idea of fighting crime inspired by comic books. From my perspective, it really depends on the person. In the real world, they're most likely just going to end up dead. It seems like this movie... It's sort of caught somewhere between making fun of the its its lead uh, characters and being somewhat affectionate of them. Like you know, they're they're the uh, the losers and the underdogs, and we kind of want to see them succeed. Mm-hmm. And it's notable that um, uh, Jeff is probably the most starry eyed about Captain Amazing. Like as soon as he mm-hmm. meets him, he's like, "You as well, sir. You as well." Mm-hmm. Like he's really hoping that Captain Amazing will maybe uh, recognize them as uh, as heroes. So, you know, keep up the good work, the good work, they said. He requires other people to validate him, despite the fact that he doesn't want anyone to sort of come into this private life of his. Mm. And I think the, the version of... Because uh, Jeff's the one I was sort of working hardest to find, how does he fit into this? What what version of masculinity is he projecting and, and struggling with? And I think it's it's a bit tricky to pin down because he's the one who seems to be most authentically in his superhero um, self, even though his is the most extreme costume, it's the most, uh, superficially, it's the most detached from him, um, kind oh. of self. You, oh, Sharon, you just gave me an idea. What this actually reminds me more of than like an LGBTQ narrative, and this is going to be somewhat of a deep cut, uh, is more like 
in the furry fandom, a lot of people's characters that they create are idealized versions of themselves that they mm. try to embody mm. so that they can be a perceived better person. Yeah. Because Jeffrey doesn't have much of a anything going on outside of the Blue Russia. Although I saw something that there was like a, a throwaway line that he worked in a, a bridal store selling flatware or something. But I don't know if that actually made it into the final movie. Yeah, no, I think it's in one of the deleted scenes. Yeah, so he's he's creating this. It's like a fake it till you make it. Like I don't know how to deal with being a man in this society, so I'm going to create this personification mm-hmm. and try to embody it. And it comes through a bit in that like otaku kind of fandom. But it but since it is the superhero, since it is something he embodies, perhaps it is something more related to how in the furry fandom a lot of people will create this idealized persona and then embody it and become a better person through it but it is still a facade until it's not if that makes sense that makes perfect sense and i think if you if you look at the way he um there's there's a scene where he sat with the other heroes in the diner and he's not wearing his blue raja suit he's wearing just cords and a jacket but he still talks with the accent he doesn't use his natural voice in front of his friends. Okay, moving on to Mr. Furious. Okay. Right now I'm kind of like a powder keg, and you're the match. If you tell me to junk it one more time... Junk it now! Ben Stiller had this kind of I'm going to be really, really angry in a kind of a petulant, dickish way. Uh, and he brought that persona into uh, like a cameo in Friends where he played, uh, uh, was it Rachel's boyfriend oh, yes. at one point? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, uh, it's largely quite unpleasant, but there's something so childish about Roy in this. Uh, it's, it's the the fact that the camera sort of pans up above him as he goes, and then kind of splays out his fingers like Wolverine popping his claws. And then what follows is pathetic. <laughs> it, it seems like Mr. Furious's biggest beef when he's not trying to be a superhero is that he gets um, zero respect or... Um, be the word it's recognition he doesn't impress anybody I I think it's recognition more than respect Mm -hmm. because if you look at the way his boss in particular talks to him she just ignores him she doesn't register anything he says Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting with it being juxtaposed with the invisible boy whose superpower is that people ignore him yeah I was just going to say he's a little bit like uh, modern day kind of uh, internet fanboys isn't he really Mm -hmm. Uh, in a sense that he so what what are you so what what is he so furious about he's got this he's got this fury within him and he wants it to manifest but ultimately you've got to kind of ask the question well what what is he furious about it's not until the end of the movie that he actually has any genuine fury that that manifests enough for him to be superpowered mm. um and it's almost like he he desperately wants to be angry 
you know, a lot, a lot like modern day internet fanboys. They, they, they go online literally just to, you know, get angry. Find to things to be angry up. about. Exactly. It's, but there's nothing actually there for them to get angry about, really. It's a, it's a shield for him. When those layers of fury start to be kind of scoured away and he can't get away from the fact that it's, it's not driving him in the way that he wanted it to do... He's actually quite vulnerable. He, when it gets mm-hmm. to the end, he's the one who's acknowledging that he's hurt more than anyone else is. So the, the way his uh, quote-unquote anger comes out throughout the film reads to me more like a, a deep-seated anxiety, and he's trying to channel it into anger in order to throw that up as a, as a defence mechanism. Mm. And it's, again, his superpower and actual ability to use it comes through when he drops that defence and admits that he's got weaknesses and is maybe not as good as he thinks he wants to be. Mm. And He's such an embodiment of the perspective of kind of building a personality around agro-toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm, one of us had to mention it, so I'm just going to... Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it looks uh, like the wolf rides in a wolf pack of one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh. And it, to, to continue that conversation around uh, these characters' relationship to masculinity, Eddie the Shoveler bought into the stereotype of, well, you get a good job, you get married, you have some kids, you settle down. And Roy is like, well, men are supposed to be aggro and uh, like angry and masculine and tough and in your face. And it, it really does come across as pathetic until he kind of has something to fight for to a certain extent at the end. And uh, to, you know, continue that, if, if you'll allow me, going through to back to Jeffrey very briefly, like relating to masculinity and being like, I don't actually embody any of these. I'm too effeminate. I, I'm too interested in the other things. So he had to develop a completely different personality to try to deal with that. Uh, if you look at the other two characters, Spleen and Invisible Boy, like Spleen is in Arrested Development as a teenager, as is kind of Roy and Jeffrey, while Invisible Boy is an actual teenager. He's kind of Gen X to everybody else's, or m- maybe millennial to everybody else's Gen X kind mm-hmm. of kind of embodiment. Mm-hmm. And, the um, and then uh, the bowler, the best character, my favorite character, mm-hmm. she's, uh, she's a girl who can't move on with her own life because of her daddy issues. Um, and I'm excited to talk about her when we get to her. But, but that everything is in relation to masculinity in this movie. I think that is really an underlying theme that oh, I was putting together yesterday, but has really come together in this conversation that I, I'm like excited has become cohesive. <laughs> We can move on to the bowler now, if you'd like. Actually, since like that's that's a good segue. I uh, Janine Garofalo is like such a big like crush slash aesthetic of mm-hmm. mine. Uh, you know, as as a young trans girl, the the idea of like, am I attracted to this woman or do I want to be this woman? And in this case, <laughs> it is yes. <laughs> um, she was your no reason it can't be that. She was your James Bond. <laughs> it, it was so funny whenever she walked on. And Lynn just looks at me and she's just like, don't you have that shirt? And I'm like, look, mm. no, no talking. <laughs> <laughs> Bowler is talking right now. 
and it's just, <laughs> I, I just it was one of those things where I saw this and I'm like, oh, oh, this was more formative than I realized. <laughs> and it is it was just very good. I, she every delivery. She has all the lines. She has all but one of the lines that I really like from this movie. Uh, the only other line being from a side character at the very beginning. And I'm shocked if you'll allow me the very quick tangent in your list of cast members. You didn't mention Ricky J. Ricky J. Of course, death man is dead. Who fucking says I'm a, I'm a publicist, not a magician. When Ricky J in real is, life course, is one of the greatest. Really <laughs> oh God, I love, I, I was so excited. I'm like, Oh my God, it's Ricky J. And Lynn stares at me. I'm like, he wrote cards as weapons. And she gives me like, like moves away from me on the couch. I'm like, I'm excited. Okay. Seriously. If you're into magic, that is a huge deal. <laughs> yeah. He's in a really good episode of the X-Files too. But anyway, uh, <laughs> other than that small scene, the bowler has all the good lines in mm-hmm. in my mind. Mm-hmm. Just the whole he fell down an elevator shaft onto, onto some, some bullets. bullets. <laughs> that line ended up in one of my books, in a manner of speaking. It was in Tiger's Eye. They built palaces and monuments to their splendor. Each of these was desired by few and built by many, none of whom would have the honor of enjoying their shelter. As the years drew on, the towers got taller and more proud. Then... One day, the great chieftain died suddenly. He was surveying his lands from a high cliff when he slipped and fell into a chasm. Onto some spears. But back to the bowler. Because I I mentioned, you know, the the somewhat joke earlier that she's kind of in her own stage of arrested development until she deals with her dad's problems. Um, And, oh, being a movie from the 90s, I expected this movie to be so much more sexist than it was. Mm-hmm. And what little, like, misogyny or sexism that is in the movie is really sequestered to, like, two scenes and doesn't involve the bowler at all. Do you mean any... the furries? When the, oh, yeah. uh, the ladies the get their shrink ray uh, on their uh, um, outfits and it, they just shrink right off them. Although that, at the same time they they still uh, uh, kind of make a make fun of uh, of the boys as Roy says I think my pants are shrinking <laughs> yeah. too oh. oh my god what Which, a 90s joke like yeah. <laughs> but the, and also there's actually like a, a a triple threat during the the losers barbecue uh, where you have PMS Avenger and the two Wonder Women yeah, and and even right before that's Ballerina Man, which mm. like Lynn and I looking at they're like, mm, I don't know, like everybody's discomfort at this is making us uncomfortable. But so but but anytime the spleen is like coming on to the bowler, she just shuts him down, like, no. There's not enough beer in the world, no. spleen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's just it's just wonderful. Just and she ends up um like relating to and talking with the blue raja in a mm. lot of scenes, like in the at the bar. Which I don't know. Like she, she seems like a person. But my the line that she says that I think is the most revealing about her is at the very end when she opens up the the bag and uh, tells her dad, "Okay, we did it. Now I'm going back to grad school." Mm. <laughs> that was the deal. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Actually, uh, it's funny you mentioned the blue Raja uh, and uh, bowler M. Did you say on your show you ship those two? <laughs> Yeah. I, um, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> you I, did. I, I think that their relationship is really, really sweet, mm. actually. Um, but well, they both have parental issues. 
Well, they do. They've got a lot of things in common. But I actually, one of the things I did also mention, I think, was I was actually quite happy. First of all, I love Janine Garofalo in anything. Mm. Um, I I just think she's such a comedic talent. I I absolutely adore her. And I'm kind of sad. I don't know if she's still working. I've not seen her in anything for a long time. But I just think she is just absolute fire. And and obviously, she is essentially the the token female of Mm. the group. The dead. It it, it is kind of very standard uh, in a lot of superhero team-ups. Or any kind of team up if, uh, in that matter, you know. I'm happy to in say the, the X Men defied this in, in that Chris well, Claremont wrote yeah. woman after woman after woman in, in, uh, in exactly. the 80s. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and Storm is obviously one of the greatest mm-hmm. uh, creations that was ever created as far as the X Men are concerned. That's right. But with, with the bowler, I, I actually really like the fact that as the token female character of the group, usually that person would probably end up with someone. Mm. Um, and as much as I like the, the relationship we has, she has with the Blue Raja, um, I am actually kind of glad that she doesn't end up someone's girlfriend. Yeah. You know, the spleen is kind of trying it on with her, and, and he is gross. I mean, he's, he's like literally like giving her kissy faces and sort of si- sliding up next to her. And, and, and to, to her credit, she just kind of bats him straight back, and, mm. and he respects that, even though he does <laughs> con- continually try his look. But also the fact that, unlike a lot of superhero costumes, I mean, you mentioned the two Wonder Women, who are obviously wearing very short Wonder Woman costumes. Mm. Um, and the PMS Avenger is wearing a, uh, I think she's also wearing like a skirt uh, and like a tight red top. Mm, but um, it's still very form-fitting. Yes. But uh, the bowler, uh, I mean, her costume is very functional. Mm. Uh, as, a, as a superhero costume, she, you know, she isn't wearing a short skirt. She's not wearing, I think she is wearing boots. But they certainly not stiletto high-heeled boots that are completely impractical. I, I theorised that the reason she's wearing those platforms is because Janine Garofalo is very, very small. Mm. Yeah. And they yeah. had to bring her up a little bit so that she could kind yeah. of be on a, a level with the camera. Yeah. But it, it, it is nice that she's not in any way sexualised mm. at yeah. all. She is a complete character in her own right. She's one of the most interesting characters. She has... An interesting backstory with her father. And she, like Victoria said, she has some of the greatest lines. I mean, you mentioned the, you know, he fell down an elevator shaft onto some bullets. And I think the spleen comes back with, I, you know, everyone suspected foul play. And she replies with, as do I. <laughs> <laughs> She's just, her timing you know, is like? fantastic. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, she she obviously does have these these daddy issues. But she's also, if you look at the powers of these characters, she's undoubtedly the most powerful as well. Oh yeah, uh, telekinetic with, with power the... over a skull filled bowling ball, which can fly all exactly. over the place. Exactly. And by the way, I went to look for what the PMS Avengers costume looks like. She looks like olive oil wearing giant oven gloves. Uh, but then I also found a cosplay of someone dressed as the Waffler. <laughs> Dane Cook's character. Well, as a oh. brief appearance. Waffle man! <laughs> and I have this truth syrup, <clears throat> which is no fat. Um, <laughs> the, the thing about Janine Garofalo, when I first, I think I first saw her in The Truth About Cats and Dogs, which was uh, like a real mid-90s rom-com where there's some kind of misunderstanding. And in that film... She plays a, a radio DJ who's like a pet specialist. So people phone in with their, their pet problems. And uh, she, you know, can, is canny and can answer to those. And her, 
neighbour, Noel, is played by Uma Thurman, who is a model and is obviously uh, positioned as gorgeous. And Ben Chaplin, this buffoonish British guy from a TV uh, sitcom from England called Game On. Game On, yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't expect anyone to get that. Oh uh, no, I used to watch it. Yeah, so. <laughs> goes to meet her after you know, in, like she gives him some good dog advice, and she shunts Uma Thurman in. And then there's a Serrano de Bergerac thing where he's sort of fallen in love with her voice, and she's pretending to be her neighbour. And at the 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 point is supposed to be her neighbour's gorgeous, and she's plump and dumpy and plain. And I'm like, have you? Fucking scene, Ginny Garofalo. She's absolutely stunning. What are you talking about, film? At the end, Ben Chaplin finds out and he goes, So you're dumb and beautiful, saying this to Uma Thurman, folks. And you're clever and and then he sort of trails off because it's like he's not gonna say that Janine Garofalo is frumpy, and it's like, okay. Walk out of this room right now, man. <laughs> Potentially off a short pier. (laughs) You do not deserve anyone. You have lost this conversation. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that is also a movie I would suggest you folks uh, see. It's very 90s. I think it was that that made me most want to see her as uh, as the bowler in this. A couple of other mystery men we've got to cover. Uh, Invisible Boy, uh, played by uh, Kel Mitchell of Keenan and Kel, the Good Burger guys. He's... Very lightly characterised. He's kind of just a walking gag who says, you know, I, I, I can, I'm invisible, but only when no one looks at me. Which is, to some degree, sort of characterised in the fact that his father completely ignores him. Mm. And he also kind of fades into the background. He ends up his most, apart from the one time he actually uses his power, he's just the finger puller for <laughs> the, the spleen. spleen. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he is also the token... Hero of color. Yes. And yes. He, yeah. he stops this being white as hell. Yeah. And he ends up not being the butt of as many jokes as you would kind of expect being mm. a film from the 90s. Yeah. Uh, like, he's never treated in any kind of way that feel like I never had to cringe at any of the jokes that he was involved with and be like, mm. oh, that's 90s racism. It was like, no, he's he's he played the straight man to a lot of other people's goofiness way more often than I was expecting. Mm. Well, most of the jokes surrounding him are to do with the fact that everybody is baffled as to how he could possibly know he could turn invisible mm. if it only works when no one looks at him. Side note, if this film was made now, he'd be the hero. He'd mm. be Miles. <laughs> yeah. Who could also turn invisible. Considering that masculinity angle that we were talking about before, uh, and side side note, I remember watching him on Nickelodeon shows when I was very young, and mm-hmm. so he was the actor that I knew most coming into this movie the very first time I saw All it right. back in 1999, which I think is very funny in a lot of ways. But uh, given that he's, you know the one who is invisible and ignored by a lot of other characters and things. But he's really representing almost the the kind of young man who is not... He hasn't had to really figure out his relationship with masculinity yet, his place. And being, like, of the younger generation than everybody else is, even though they act like teenagers, they're really not. uh, He's that sort of forgotten generation element between uh too like he's he's gen x between the boomers and the millennials if mm-hmm. you will uh so he's, he's like 
he's representative of like a forgotten generation as well as a kind of question mark as to how he's going to relate to things because he hasn't had to have the 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 moment of how he's going to relate to and what his personality is going to be essentially like the other characters have and so he hasn't had to come up with a fake one yeah so he's like he has interests in superheroes and things like that and he's very starry-eyed in a very young kind of naive way which is i think one of the reasons why they didn't really harp on it because it is not a part of him it's a genuine interest like it hasn't become his personality yet yeah but also the fact that he ends up being the mvp by the end the the, the, that part where they need something very very specific to get them past that door and he is literally the only person who can do it yeah so in, he gets that self-worth. He he gets a moment of actualization, which, you know, I would hope would translate into being a more, like, well-rounded person in the future if we saw, you know, 10 years later after this movie. The next character to talk about is the spleen, played by Paul Rubens, who is almost characterized by his casting more than anything else. Rubens played uh, Pee Wee Herman throughout the 80s. Uh, who was a massive child's entertainer and uh, had a Tim Burton movie made about him and, and was just kind of this sort of awkward, uh, you know, weird little geek type guy, but very much, fa- uh, you know, family friendly despite being somewhat unnerving. And then in 1991, uh, Paul Rubens was found in a porno theatre jacking it. And in America, you're not allowed to do that and also entertain children. So uh, he became no longer a big family entertainer. So he kind of slithered into this film as this golem creature <laughs> dressed as uh, as the spleen. His whole thing is to be kind of hapless and repellent at the same time and like a little bit pitiable, but at the same time... Yeah, he he's enthusiastic about being like part of a uh, part of something. Mm. Yeah. yeah, he's he is kind of the the embodiment of those well, I know we, we keep mentioning going back to teenage boys, but you know, young boys in general mm. in the playground, you know, farting on each other and you know, thinking it's funny. Um, and to be fair, I love a good fart joke as as much as the next person. You know, fart jokes, poop jokes, I I am a child and I will laugh at them. Hey you fellas. We're down in three days looking for superheroes. Uh-oh. Not really? Yeah. Uh, actually, we're just leaving. Yes, wrong than that. <laughs> oh. Here we go. Perfect time. That's for you. Hamburger, right? Yeah, that's what I did. Enjoy. Why are you guys so ditching me? It hurts my feelings. I'm a superhero, too. I have powers. Really? Oh, like what? Ooh. So glad you asked. Oh, no. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Well, it all started when I was just 13 years of age. One day, while walking with some friends, I accidentally cut the cheese. Well, in my adolescent awkwardness, I blamed it on an old gypsy woman who happened to be passing by. Big mistake! The gypsy woman placed a curse upon my head. Because I'd smelt it, she decreed... I would forevermore be he who does it! Let me illustrate. No, you don't have to. It's not necessary, really. Let's see. Distance? Seven meters. Airspeed normal? Compensate for air conditioning? Pull my fingers. Don't do it. 
Oh, dear God. Silent, but deadly. Interestingly about Paul Rubens, um, one of the first things I actually ever saw Paul Rubens in was the 1992 Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Because oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And uh, and obviously his death scene in that movie is, is quite iconic because uh, he it takes him ages to yeah. die. Ah, and ow. <laughs> After being staked, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, the first thing that I'd ever seen him in. Um, oh, hang on! Had you it... seen Flight of the Navigator before that? Oh, he's Max. The uh, you are the Navigator. No. Is yeah. He? Oh my God. He he went by an alias for the actual cast, but that's totally okay. him. Right. Fair enough. Oh, I did not. I, oh, did, not, I did. I've. I've I've not seen Flight of the Navigator for a long time, but I would never have known that if you hadn't told me ever. It's he's uh, pretty well disguised. It's you can hear hear it when uh, he goes wacky after scanning David. He's like, <laughs> Wait, like he does the pee wee laugh. Oh, yeah. Well, then in that case, then uh, well, that uh, uh, Flight of the Navigator was the first thing <laughs> that, I, that I saw him in back back when I was uh, a child. But mm. um, but yeah, so the the character that he played in Buffy the Vampire Slayer was just this. Thing, incredible uh lesson in in overacting that i've kind of taken with me uh throughout the rest of my <laughs> life and then for him to be the spleen and and to be perfectly honest with you i i didn't know i knew he was Pee Wee herman but i've never seen really anything to do with peewee herman i i just i know <sighs> of herman, but i didn't know the story about you know him being caught um in flagrante Yes. Uh, so, so that's completely new, not uh, new information for me right here and now. Mm. Uh, really? Yeah, genuinely. Huh. I, I did not. Uh, I'm obviously not as uh, a fay with the life of, of Paul Rubens as everyone else. I've clearly got a Paul Rubens shaped blind spot uh, in my in my knowledge. Uh, yeah, I mean, but, I don't um, think Pee Wee Pee Wee's Playhouse was ever screened in the UK, so we Brits wouldn't oh. know about him. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting because my mother was yeah. obsessed with Pee Wee. Yeah. I, I have seen, you know, there are three Pee Wee movies. And oh, shit. I have seen, Seriously? I, yes, I have seen all of them multiple times. I've seen probably every episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse because my mother showed it to me when I was a child. I'm not a fan of it necessarily, although it is pretty fun seeing. Um, Morpheus be a character in it because Dude, seriously. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh god, what's his name? I totally blanked on the actor's name. Oh my god, I'm looking for Pee Wee's Big Adventure on Amazon because I wasn't sure whether uh, this had been released on DVD in the UK because I know I had to find the Blu-ray which was only re- early released in America and I found a She-Wee which is like a, a female <laughs> portable urinal. That's that's not what I asked for. Amazon, oh. you're drunk. <laughs> Yeah, there's Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Pee-wee's Big Holiday, and Big Top Pee-wee, and then, like, fucking 15 years of Pee-wee's Playhouse. Uh, <laughs> and just, like, my mother had the action figures of all the characters from Pee-wee's Playhouse. Like, there were like, action what? figures? Good lord. Yeah. I can confirm Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the Tim Burton, like, de- debut film, has never been released on UK DVD, because we don't know who Pee-wee Herman is, mm-hmm. same as Camp Nowhere was never released over here, because we don't know what summer camp is in England. 
I God, Camp Nowhere, that's another formative thing from my youth. But yeah, so my mother had a glass cabinet that had like the fancy china and all of the peewee action figures in it. And grandma's so silverware. <laughs> Uh, I had a very different relationship to to Paul Rubens and and Pee-wee and all that kind of stuff, apparently. And boy, getting shunned from the film industry for like six or seven years for being found masturbating in a porno theater. Like, what do you think porno theaters are for? What are these (laughs) things to be for people to be upset by? Like this weird, like, like looking back at it today, the, the idea of an entire like group of people, like a, a section of the country being upset that this previous children's performer did a thing that millions of people do. All the time, every day. And of all the places to be caught, or of all the places to be doing that, that's got to be like one of the... Yeah, it's not like it was at a it's playground. Obvious. <laughs> it's the obvious place. It's yeah, not like it was Jeffrey Jones sneaking into a Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah, it wasn't on set while he was shooting yeah. the show. It was he, he went to a place where the point, like, they sell you jack-off material. That's the point of it. Yeah. What do you expect? The fucking so. hypocrisy of America to be like, oh, we're so shocked by this. And we're so shocked by Clinton. Oh, this, oh we're so shocked. And then you could literally have a guy say, you know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss <laughs> I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. <laughs> I can do anything. And then days later get elected president. Uh. Like, how did we get here? Like, it's so wild to me. But Paul, Paul Rubens was done dirty by the industry. Yes. And uh, Can we please move on? <laughs> sure. But anyway. Anyway, the, the spleen... The only thing that I had on the spleen other than that was that um, he's another character who is older than he is acting because he's literally in Arrested Development of that teenage gross-out state. Yeah. Also, the... the woman cl- placed the, a curse upon my head. Also, the, the, <laughs> the G word is used, and I was like, huh, it's interesting how now we recognize that as being a slur. Of course, if Stephen King had written Mystery Men, it would be an old dude of Romany extraction... Planting a finger on the spleen's chest and going, farting. There's the, s- <laughs> the seventh anyway. member of the uh, group. But we are going to go longer than Mystery Man, and Mystery Man is too long. <laughs> <laughs> the seventh member of the group is the Sphinx, played by Wes Studi, who has no problems. He just needs some people to amaze with his wisdom. Uh, there's a, a deleted scene where they go to a taco stand to try to to make contact with the with the Sphinx, and they order from Luis Guzman uh, a very like a, a, a Mexican meal that that is like the secret code they think is going to get them connection, and uh, then just have to sit there and eat all of this um, Mexican food. Like there's there's about twenty minutes of deleted scenes. And I'm just thinking, this is not making the film go any faster. And the film doesn't really make sense anyway, so why have scenes that attempt to make sense of things that then happen? But Westudi does extremely well playing this extremely straight. And mysteriously. Terribly (laughs) mysteriously. And then the, yeah. the fact that he's mostly based on, on uh, sort of uh, fortune cookie style uh, wordplay, uh, wisdom, spinnerets 
but he absolutely nails Mr. Furious in terms of him being beholden to the nature of anger. It's easy to sneer at the kind of cod fortune cookie wisdom, especially the kind that seems to base itself entirely around word reversal, but that doesn't mean it's not somehow insightful. Anything that stops you in your tracks and gets you to examine your behaviours is at least worthy of some merit. Uh, but uh, but yeah, ultimately, his his thing is he needs to inspire, I suppose. Mm. And like we never hear whether he attempted to inspire some other people and then they ended up psychofraculated or something. <laughs> oh, those poor bastards. And he can cut guns in half with his mind. Yes. West Studi is an unusual one. He's incredibly dignified. And yet a lot of people will remember him for either this or the Street Fighter movie. This team must learn to work together or mark my words. It will be torn apart. He who questions training only trains himself at asking questions. For when you care for what is outside, what is inside cares for you. You know, the clock is ticking here. Are we going to sew dresses all day or are we going to rescue amazing? I need a thimble. Anybody? Patience, my son. To summon your power for the conflict to come, you must first have power over that which conflicts you. Okay, am I the only one who finds these sayings just a little bit formulaic? If you want to push something down, you have to pull it up. If you want to go left, you have to go right. It's Your temper is very quick, my friend. But until you learn to master your rage... Your rage will become your master? That's what you were going to say, right? Right? Not necessarily. Okay, you know what? That's it. I'm out of here. The movie's very light, and it's very light on themes. One that I did notice, though, and it's as a result of them being the other guys, is imposter syndrome. And they have to kind of overcome that by the end. I think they're in a situation where they have to step up, because if they don't step up, then then who else will? They are literally the only heroes. Well, they're not the only heroes, because we have seen others, but they're the only heroes then and there that can possibly save the day i think there's possibly also a degree of they've done fucked up so bad by killing captain amazing yeah there's very little that they could do from this point in that would be worse for those who haven't seen the film they kill captain amazing by accident while they're trying to rescue him because he keeps screaming at them that they're morons which leads to mistakes being made and he ends up psychofraculated which is basically what happens when you microwave a marshmallow peep it made me think, actually, looking at them, that they are kind of... They're, they're mildly obsessed with Captain Amazing. Like, uh, Roy follows the disco boys to find out that Captain Amazing... To find out where they're heading and ends up at the gates to Casanova's mansion. And, like, th- this is a really key area because it's the place they keep trying to get through <laughs> repeatedly throughout the movie and they keep just getting beaten up tossed out on their ears and denied access. And then he sees Captain Amazing turning up and then it's all about like trying, like where is Captain Amazing? He's got to save the day. And they they kind of remind me a little bit of Edward Nigma in Batman Forever and Maxwell Dillon in The Amazing Spider-Man and Aldrich Killian in Iron Man 3. They, they are effectively prototype villains in another hero's story. But in the end... Captain Amazing kind of ends up as a, a sort of a, a, an anti-hero or an anti, like a, just a shitty hero <laughs> uh, in their story. 
it is kind of a flipping of the tables wherein uh, the the established hero that everyone should be invested in is heavy handed and very selfish. I mean, his whole plan, uh, Lance Hunt. Let's 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 face it, Lance Hunt is Captain Amazing. He takes what? the glasses off when he transforms. <laughs> That's to me. That's crazy, Alex. How could he see? <laughs> but his plan is okay. He he talks to Ricky Jay and says, can, "You know, wh- wh- who can I fight?" Because he he saves a nursing home at the beginning, which he considers to be beneath him. Though interestingly, the mystery men don't consider it to be beneath them. He should have left it to the mystery men, who might have just about succeeded had he not turned up turned up at that point. I don't know. They were on the back foot at that stage, but. His plan is to get Casanova Frankenstein, you know, acquitted at his upcoming hearing and to be released. He's been in jail or in in Arkham, let's face it, for 20 years, since the 70s, since 1977. So his mansion is still wired up for the 70s. I don't know when he developed the psychofraculator. Maybe he thought of it while he was imprisoned. But oh, oh. Yeah. Dr. Heller specifically says that all the scientists who worked on the superfraculator went insane from the, uh, the the attempt and ended up in the asylum where you. Casanova Frankenstein was for the last 20 years. So he stole it from them. Yep, and then blew them all up. Got it. Okay. There's also something to do with Lena Olin, that uh, that doctor who helps him. It feels like there was there was something taken out because she just disappears from the film at some yeah. point and it feels like he was probably going to kill her or something. Uh, but like she's his, she's his inside woman uh, on this. So okay, Captain Amazing's plan is to get Casanova released and then immediately go to apprehend him privately in Casanova's mansion where no one can see him. The whole point of getting him released should surely be to embark on a campaign of very public nemesising. Wherein <laughs> Casanova tries something, Captain America stops him, and somehow Casanova gets away. The sustainability of this plan mm-hmm. is surely the key. The idea being he needs to be in the public eye, seen to be doing something on a consistent basis that helps the city. Because just doing it once when no one can see it, it like it's it's not going it's not going to be enough to get him that Pepsi endorsement. But back. what he's he's not really thinking about. Yeah, he's a moron. <laughs> Um, the long-term functionality of his role as the city's patron superhero. He is in this for the thrill of, not even the chase, he's in it for the thrill of the cheer. Mm. The people afterwards who applaud him and tell him how wonderful he is. He's a shitty, shitty Tony Stark, basically. Yeah, when you look at the versions of, of, of being a man that they're all struggling with and trying to work out their own... Uh, authentic versions of mm. he's not even trying to get an authentic version this is just the most superficial uh show of what a success is mm. that he uh is capable of portraying and uh, and the the upshot of that is that he isn't good at peopling he can't talk to people in a way that that makes them feel confident and able to do the things that he needs them to do and so the fact that the toggles end up getting flipped too many times and he ends up getting toasted is entirely his own fault yeah yeah i feel i feel like if this movie was made today and captain amazing was made to be a bit more you know 
capable and less of a meathead mm-hmm. instead of uh in the end being just captured and getting killed he it would turn out that he was in league with the villains the whole time because mm. it would it would really close the the theme of having a very capitalist superhero because yeah. the idea would be that you seize the means of you know producing your own spectacles so that people keep giving you money and endorsements yeah, so, so supply and the, demand are an infinite chain controlled yeah, so by the, you yeah, so it's like, oh, well, what do we do? Well, what if I was in charge of all the villains and then uh, I was out there fighting all of the villains but then secretly releasing them to have this never-ending chain of villains so I can keep getting the press, so I can keep getting the money, so I can keep getting the yeah. endorsements. And in, in reality, he is the the big supervillain, big bad, which I feel like I have seen or read somewhere but can't – quite remember where See, but that would that's... be a fantastic takedown of batman a billionaire who could afford to do something about gotham more than just punching its criminals and this has been said repeatedly in, in recent years but yeah. like the whole revolving door system of arkham asylum like if you ask the question why do they keep getting let out if it turns out that bruce wayne is ensuring that it happens so he can keep batmaning it up that's a really great like if you're gonna like parody batman properly that's how you do it yeah, and my uh, to the point where it, it seems like it's such an obvious way to close that loop thematically that last night my partner was like, oh, I'm surprised that they killed him and that he didn't have a heel turn yeah. and become this, like, overarching villain for this purpose. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense thematically, and I, you know, I swear I've seen it somewhere, but uh, maybe the 90s just didn't have that kind of concept of like capitalism as a as a theme perhaps we live in a little bit more of a progressive or obvious age for that mm. uh and just in the end they just made it like this meathead superhero who just was about making money off of his endorsements and the the fame he's just a, a narcissist yeah, yeah. He was just, yeah that's all he was yeah um but and, if he was a capable narcissist <laughs> yeah uh but there are other examples in more recent years that uh, of, of doing this with more heart. And I feel like the Incredibles, the first one, when it came out prior to Marvel really hitting it big, just about managed to get that idea of, we want to be superheroes in a society that now doesn't want us to be superheroes. Yeah. So it, it felt like that was this done right in terms of being able to hit a major audience who were just on board with it from the word go and they just sort of sort of got it whilst at the same time parodying the uh, silver age of comics and it had kind of a, a 60s sensibility there's a reason Lalo Schifrin did the score for the Incredibles so I feel like if maybe Mystery Man had come out around about that time and been a bit more like The Incredibles, it could have been the indie alternative to The Incredibles, especially if they'd lowered the budget considerably, <laughs> done a bit less yeah. elaborate sets and made it more you, of a kind of a, an indie comedy. Yeah, you've got to kind of ask the question, well, what exactly did they spend all that money on? <laughs> because I, I kind of feel like there's nothing on screen that really kind of denotes that yeah. amount of money. Again, when, really. you, when you see The Matrix... Five exactly. million dollars less, and and look at that, and look how that holds up nowadays. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> oh, this is a fine, elegant Harvey Forest banker. Even when it's sucked by scum like you, Captain Amazing. What a surprise! I knew you couldn't change. I knew you'd know that. Oh, I know that, and I knew you'd know. I'd know you knew. 
But I didn't. I only knew that you'd know that I knew. Did you know that? Of course. Please, won't you join me? With pleasure. Oh, quick thought. Would you mind removing the submicronic laser in the ring on the index finger of your left hand? Of course. And if it wouldn't be too much trouble, go ahead and disengage the psychotropic bacterium dart launchers in your slippers. By the way, this necessitated once again Kinka Usher getting all up in Jeffrey Rush's manky toes when he takes off his slippers here with his fish eye lens. It's unbelievable. Done. The cold fusion ultrasonic neurostunner in your drink stir. Turn it off. We know each other so well, don't we? Lance. Well, we've always been each other's greatest nemesis. This is I. Nemesis. What, what's the plural on that? Nemesis. Whatever. If you're going to prison for life this time, Casanova. You see, here in Champion City, we still do a fairly brisk trade. Injustice. I thought it was all about publicity and keeping your sponsors happy. See, it's that kind of cynicism that I, I truly feel is starting to poison society. Oh, looky here. A multi-frequency radio detonator. You should be more careful when discarding incriminating evidence. Oh, no, no, no. This is an amusing little gizmo. It's really quite cool. Yeah? What, what, what is it? It's a chloroform-deploying portable enticement snare. Ah, oh, dang! Oh, oh Lancey. You really are so predictable. <laughs> Jeffrey Rush's spicy ham salad of a performance. He kind of fits in the the nonsensical villain who just wants to destroy archetype. There's no depth here, there's no pain. But there's something, like, he seems to really want to be the empresario as well. Like, he, there's a reason why he, uh, like, forms his own version of the Warriors gathering at the beginning. And even, like, when he gets, like, the Suzies, the Furries, the not-so-goody mob. And then actually says, can you dig it at one point? Like, he wants to be holding court. It's the furriers. Oh, sorry. Furriers. The furriers. I could barely hear his accent I, so thick. <laughs> I know. I was watching it with subtitles. Ah. They were all wearing furs. They were not themselves furries. But, mm. I mean, some of them could be. Who knows? They may have had rich inner lives. But um, <laughs> I love the, the best thing for me is just the name Casanova Frankenstein, mm. a charismatic mad scientist. It seems pretty perfect. Yeah. It's like the ideal supervillain name. Now, We Hate Movies did not care for Mystery Men. Their show on it is funny as hell, especially when they're fielding the theory laid down by Tom Waits in a casual interview where he said, Ah, this movie was directed by Tim Burton under a pseudonym. And it's like, is there any validity to that? We Hate Movies go into it. But they had some fun with Casanova Frankenstein. Shuffler makes sense. Casanova Frankenstein. Yeah. Jeffrey Rush ain't attractive. Well, and he's not Frankenstein. Well, no, I thought like, okay, like he's, he's like more Frankenstein <laughs> than he is attractive. But that's the thing. He's like he's like uh he's like a banged up ugly monster dude that's laying pipe constantly. I see what's going but on. But I was playing this little game in my head where you you mix like you know, a character from you know literature and oh, sure, such sure, sure. and with a monster. So I have Boo Radley Dracula. <laughs> And D'Artagnan Wolfman. <laughs> D'Artagnan Wolfman, the most distinguished of the Wolfmen. 
huckleberry creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, let's see. So Casanova does not come after our mystery men. They don't even register on the map for him. It's the mystery men who keep trying to invade his mansion. They keep trying to get through the gates. Which brings us to Dr. Heller, the remarkably relaxed mad scientist played by Tom Waits. What Dr. Heller represents for the group is he lends them confidence by uh, uh, giving them all of these non-lethal weapons. And uh, when they get the uh, Herkimer battle jitty, they've got like this battering ram that allows them to gain entry to this place that they've been denied entry over and over again and just like push their way through the gates. And uh, But he also gives them, because they're non-lethal weapons, a moral code, the idea that, mm. that, that they should try not to kill these people. Uh, non-lethal means of taking people out will actually make them, technically they end up morally superior to uh, Captain Amazing. And if nothing else... As we said earlier, Captain Amazing is entirely out for himself. So their sense of being uh, imposters is confounded when William H. Macy's uh, shoveler gives them that big speech about it's only us. We're the only ones left who can actually do this. And we all could absolutely go home. But we could also be heroes. So it's kind of the... With great power comes great... Well, with in their case, with zero power <laughs> comes great responsibility. They confer upon themselves the responsibility purely because they know about this bad situation and no one else is going to do anything about it. Mm. That whole lethal versus non-lethal force and the moral opposition in the film would probably have been more clearly thematically resonant if the only person in the entire film who was killed wasn't at the hands of the incompetent good guys. But I guess we have the threat of fraculation. Sorry, psycho-fraculation. You still get fraculated. But I still think the quiet dignity of William H. Macy carries off this inspirational speech moment. Sphinx, what in heaven's name do we do? Sometimes the true hero is the one with the courage to run away. I like the way this man thinks. Let's run. We can't run. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's been established that we can run. This is egg salad. It's loaded with cholesterol. The wife won't even let me touch it. Hardly seems to matter now, because chances are we're already dead. Amazing is gone. There's no use waiting for the cavalry, because as of this moment, the cavalry is us. Oh, yeah, but I don't want to get fraculated. Psycho fraculated. Still get fraculated. This is our fight, whether we like it or not. Just we few. We're not your classic superheroes. We're not the favorites. We're the other guys. We're the guys nobody ever bets on. But I'll tell you what I think. I think you and that ball of yours have an appointment that you've got to keep. Invisible boy, I think it's time you were seen. Sphinx, you have trained us well. And Dr. Heller, you might just have given us the edge we need. And Spleen, I don't want to stand behind you, but I'll fight beside you with pride. Jeff, you've got a rare and beautiful gift. The city needs you tonight. And Roy, in all the years I've known you, I've never seen you walk away from a fight. Why, you lifted a city bus once, man. I think you've got what it takes to handle Casanova. We're all in over our heads, and we know it. If we take on this fight, those of us who survive it 
will forever after show our scars with pride and say, that's right, I was there. I fought the good fight. So what do you say? Do we all gather together and go kick some Casanova butt? Or do I eat this sandwich? I say, what the fork? Let's do it. Greetings, Blue Raja here. I've master of silverware. Come to acknowledge the top tier patrons. Salutations and thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hesco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Hui, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Little Timmy Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nicholas Ord, Master of the Spinning Platters, Duane Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lutsch, Daniel Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, David Boy Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, Frankie Pumsey, and Lorraine Chisholm. Thank Fork for all of you. And a special thank you to the Master of the Mystery Men, our sponsor for tonight, Jameis Enright. And it ends on All Star by Smash Mouth. And it's so perfect that this movie had that song, and they're such underdogs that everyone associates that song with Shrek. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> who's supposed to be the underdog, but is in fact this vile green emperor. <laughs> oh, I mean, like, if you actually go back and watch the, uh, um, the, the video of, I think we talked about this already, uh, uh, Victoria, of, of uh, um, All Star, it's, it's like, it's framed around the mystery man. It even begins with, I'm pencil head. So you've got... Um, Doug Jones from the, the uh, Guillermo del Toro films as Pencil Head. And, 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 and it, McGee directed it, and it's this whole big thing that must have been all over MTV, and still no one showed up for this. Or at least only $30 million worth of people showed up for this. Mm. So. I think it came out the same weekend as The Sixth Sense. Yeah, in that's true. And obviously The Sixth Sense was just a complete behemoth. And to, a movie, I, I don't think I don't think anything stood a chance against the Sixth Sense. To bring us back to that holiday in Miami I mentioned earlier, I I looked at the ballots and, and went right, so I could see the Mystery Men or the Sixth Sense. Well, I've been looking forward to the Mystery Men for ages, so I'm not going to go see this sleeper hit, the Sixth Sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's fine. You got some odd taste in movies. I saw the Sixth Sense in the cinema uh, when I got back to England, and it was, of course, absolutely flabbergastingly good we've done a show on it uh and and uh, and worthy of its uh, sleeper hit status uh and uh, it's kind of it work it works that the mystery men didn't end up being huge mm. because mm-hmm. like that's the whole that's the that's whole the point, point. Yeah. yeah what they, they needed are the to, underdogs yeah what they needed to do was just get the budget in line with knowing they're gonna fail mm. <laughs> but it's yeah. universal writing them a blank check so what are you gonna do mm. yeah ah well very appropriate that it has like a little bit of good it does its job it's it's lovable in its own right for that but it's not a huge blockbuster like the mystery men themselves Mm. Mm. yeah okay then i think that will about do it 
Um, ladies, would you like to tell the folks at home where they can find your stuff? We will start with M. Okay, so uh, you can find me. Uh, my podcast is called Verbal Diorama. Um, and uh, luckily for me, uh, I chose a weird name for my podcast. So <laughs> all of the social media handles uh, are all the same. So whether you're on uh, Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, it's just at Verbal Diorama. Um, and yeah, you can find my podcast. Um, I like, a, like we've mentioned a couple of times. I had, did do an episode on Mystery Men. It came out uh I think it was November last year, mm-hmm. um, but I've covered a, a whole range of, of different things. I'm not quite as established in the podcast market as a school of movies. I can't say I've done quite as much, but because uh, I only started uh, beginning of last year. But um, but yeah, if uh, if you want to find um, and subscribe and or chat to me on social media, I'm always happy to uh, to chat to anyone. You can find me on Twitter, of course, at uh, Vixen Witch, but that's two V's instead of a W. Uh, Vixen Witch. Uh, I don't really do anything uh, special. You can find most of my work on this very feed. Probably the last, I think, several weeks. You said it was Shrek, then Princess Bride, then mm-hmm. this. Woo! That's going to be a, way too much of of me in people's ears. Never. But never. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I, I would love to guest another podcast if there was any need for a guest if for anybody out there, comma M. And um, <laughs> subtle. You are absolutely yes. welcome on Victoria anytime. We'll hey, talk. you just 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 drop me a line. Uh, can I can I plug a kind of charity thing? Please, yeah, absolutely. So some friends of mine, uh, you know, we're in this as we are here here at School of Movies. We understand that this is an unprecedented time. <laughs> uh, now. <laughs> Oh. But my my uh, I have a couple of friends who run a special needs cat rescue out mm-hmm. in the Midwest. It's called uh, Rocket Cat Rescue on Twitter at Rocket Cat Rescue, and they could really use some donations. They have a Kofi like the K O dash F I um, that they're they're currently trying to raise the money to save this kitten that they uh, they got that has this. Uh, progressive like viral infection that they actually have to purchase experimental medicine for and he was like washed into a storm drain which is the only reason he survived and the story breaks my heart and he's actually responding really well to the medicine but they're still trying to raise another like thousand dollars to save him and uh if you could go and drop them a couple of bucks on their kofi um it's just coffee slash rocky cat rescue or you can find them through their twitter uh they could really use the money and it goes to like a a pretty good cause they they save a lot of cats that really get second chances at a new home and a new life brilliant thank you okay this episode as you might have guessed ran long we rambled like crazy there was maybe half an hour worth of extra material that was deleted and that will be on the school of movies patreon as a cutting class episode of deleted material we will be back next week with arguably pixar's worst made film a baffling collection of misjudged ideas named the good dinosaur and after that the spielberg season continues with indiana jones and the temple of doom so at the very least you know what's coming up over the next month you have your homework go to it For he who learns to watch the movies he must, must watch movies to learn. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. 
She was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of an L on her forehead. Well, the years start coming and they don't stop coming. Fed to the rules and I hit the ground running. Didn't make sense not to live for fun. Your brain gets smart, but your head gets dumb. So much to do, so much to see. So what's wrong with taking the back streets? You'll never know if you don't go. You'll never shine if you don't glow. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid. And they say it gets colder You're bundled up now, wait till you get older But the media men beg to differ Judging by the hole in the satellite picture The ice we skate is getting pretty thin The water's getting warm so you might as well swim My world's on fire, how about yours? That's the way I like it and I'll never get bored Hey now, you're an all-star Get your game on, go play Hey now, you're a rock star Get the show on, get paid Show on. 